Well, good morning. Yeah, you know, I got I to just say, because um, it, it was exciting. So two months ago, we had a, a men's breakfast. I think we had something like 22, 23 guys that showed up, which was fabulous. And every other month, we do a men's breakfast. And then we had the men's retreat, and that was phenomenal because it was the men of Lighthouse just stepping up and leading the entire thing. My staff got to go to a men's retreat and be ministered to uh, for the first time, and we had a fabulous time last month. And then this Saturday, yesterday, we had our first men's breakfast following the retreat, and we doubled in size from one breakfast to another. So very excited about that. Gentlemen, I believe that the next men's breakfast is going to be August 18th, and we are going to be actually serving one of our ministries locally, somebody that's a part of our church. Uh, It's Fresh Beginnings Ministry. I believe we're going to be helping them out with their chili cook-off to raise funds for mentoring and training up others who can come alongside the homeless and hurting in our community. So put that in your calendars, 7 a.m. on Saturday, August 18th, uh, so that you will be ready next month. And if you're just joining us, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm really grateful uh, to get to celebrate this. This is like the first weekend of summer for most of our kids here in the Newport Mesa School District, and of course, it's nice and overcast for them. So we got summer out of the way a couple weeks ago, and now comes the June gloom. Um, But we are in the book of James, and so if you have a Bible, or even if you don't, there's one should be one in the seat back in front of you, open it, turn it to James chapter 3, and we're going to keep working through there. So the book of James, just for those of you who are just joining us, may have missed a couple of weeks. I know vacations are starting for a lot of people. But uh, the book of James is written by Jesus' half-brother. And he's writing to a group of believers, mainly who are coming out of the Jewish faith and have embraced Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. But specifically, these Jewish believers have been scattered all uh, beyond the Palestinian territory. They are all around in uh, Gentile territory. They're living in a land that is not their own, outside of the promised land, living amongst people who do not consider that their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the one true God. Do not worship Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And James is basically saying, here's how you can represent God there. Here's how you can live out your faith wholly and completely. And last week, we really focused on what I would consider to be the thesis of the entire letter of James. And so I'll remind you, for those of you who weren't here, and for those of you who were, I'll just remind you of what we talked about. James's point was, hey, we may be saved by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. Because if your faith is genuine, then it will naturally bear fruit in your life. If you genuinely have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, then you're going to begin to see some transformative work in your life. You're going to see things that the Spirit does in your life, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things are going to naturally be produced in your life. If you don't see any fruit, it causes your faith to be suspect. Now, granted, God is the one who determines the true state of your heart. But we should be able to see some fruit. And so James then begins to spend the rest of his letter examining the kind of fruit that's produced in the lives of believers. And the fruit that he's going to focus on today is one of the most visible, one of the most easily recognized, and that is the fruit of our tongue, the words that we use. So in James chapter 3, let's go ahead and begin reading through this, and then we'll start taking it apart. 
Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways, and anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. I don't think that's any of us. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Way to pull your punches, James. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise the Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No, and neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James is absolutely going after what he would consider to be one of the most obvious forms of fruit, our tongues. And he starts, by the way, speaking to those who would aspire to be teachers, those who would stand up and want to direct other people. And he says, listen, be very cautious when you're considering that. Do not take that role lightly. And I'm speaking to myself right now because those who teach are held to a higher standard. Not only does your life speak, but your words can easily lead other people astray. And so he starts the first verse here. Not many of you should be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's not just my examples that might lead others astray, but my theology, my teaching, how I direct people, because words are powerful. But before you get the idea that teachers should be perfect... Because if that's the case, you ought to find another one because I am not that person. He goes, hey, none of us are. So he continues in the very next breath to kind of put a nail in the coffin of thinking that somebody could potentially be perfect in every word that comes out of their mouth. He says, we all stumble in many ways, understatement of the year. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, is he suggesting that we should strive to control our tongues and not speak idle words that are destructive. Absolutely. But his point, and it's insinuated in this, is just the opposite. We will never be perfect in everything that we say. If we were, we would be perfect in everything we do because the hardest, most difficult part of your body to control is your tongue. And it's our tongue, ultimately, that guides the rest of our lives. This is the point he's going to make in the very next couple of verses. Verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, for example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, 
They're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. And likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. So he gives us two metaphors for the tongue, both of which are very small things compared to the vessel with which they are attached, and yet they have a great control over the direction that that thing goes. The first one is a bit. It's a piece of metal that's put between the horse's teeth. And that bit, when it's pulled on, will turn the horse's head, which turns the horse's body. And that horse, unless it wants to experience great pain, will follow the bit's lead. Likewise, and you guys know, when you see a boat, all you see is the top and the sail. But underneath the water is a small rudder. And when that rudder turns, the whole ship is turned. And although there are powerful forces, winds and waves that push on that ship, the rudder itself can turn it this way and that. And Paul, I'm sorry, James, basically says the tongue does the same thing to the human body. It leads us. When we say, oh, I'm going to do this or that. I'm going to go here or there. You know, I am going to be better than that person. Or I am better than that person. Or my dad's bigger than your dad. He can beat him up. Or whatever you end up saying. To your, you know, when you make claims about what you're going to do, when you make declarations to other people about what you think of them, it is extremely powerful, and it can lead the course of our lives in one way or the other, sometimes into destruction, sometimes in a place that we want to be. But there's one thing, as he uses these metaphors, that I really want us to recognize, because it could be easy to overlook, but it's extremely important, and that is that although the bit... Although the rudder and although the tongue may steer the larger vessel, they are not the ones that do the steering. They do not determine the direction that we steer. They are simply a means to an end. With the bridle and the bit, it's the rider who determines the direction. He or she is the one that pulls on the reins, that turns the bit, and ultimately turns the horse. With the rudder, it's attached to a wheel, which is in the hands of the pilot. And the captain says, go this or that way. And the pilot turns the wheel, and the rudder turns, and the entire ship turns. And with the tongue, it may control the direction of our body through our boasting, but it is simply a means to an end. It is not the one that determines our direction. Something else does. And the word that Scripture uses most often to describe what ultimately determines the direction is our heart. Now, don't think of the muscle that's inside here contracting and pumping blood. When we're talking about the heart, we're talking the whole of a human being, their, their personality, their, their character, the kind of person they are, and all of the stuff that is accumulated there, the way that they think of themselves, their identity. That is your heart, the core of who you are. And that ultimately determines what comes out of your mouth. And this is a point that Jesus, James's big brother, makes over and over and over again in his teaching. James would have been very familiar with his big brother's teaching. Let's just look at one of them. You don't have to turn here, but can we throw Luke chapter 6 up there on the, on the board? Yes, no, maybe so? Thank you. Luke 6. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the mouth... I'm sorry. For the mouth speaks... What the heart is full of. 
Let me read that last verse one more time. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If your heart is full of insecurity, then you are, you are going to speak words of critique and criticism as you begin to cut people around you down to a more manageable size so that you feel more comfortable in comparison to them. If your heart is full of anger and bitterness, then you are going to speak words of anger. You're going to be caustic in the way that you interact with people. If your heart is full of lust or greed, then the words of your mouth will flow out of the soil from which they grow. But if your heart is full of If the Spirit has had His way with your heart and He's already begun tilling and terraforming your heart, removing the stones of insecurity and the weeds of bitterness and anger that grow up and choke out our joy, then the words that flow out of your mouth will follow suit. We do not need to cut one another down when we are comfortable in who we are, when we can rest in our identity as sons and daughters of God, when we can rest in the grace that he has lavished on us, then we are in a position to more naturally give grace to other people rather than pointing out their flaws because we are so unbelievably aware of ours. Does this make sense? So although the tongue may be the tool by which we steer the rest of the body, as the mouth speaks, our bodies follow and our lives are influenced by it. And some of you are aware of how tweets even or social media posts can radically affect relationships or radically even affect people's careers. We're seeing a ton of that right now. Words are powerful. Words have consequences. Words can come back to haunt us even if they're idly thrown out there. We're not just talking about the ones we speak, but with the ones we think and allow to flow out even through cyberspace. And James is saying, be cautious with your words. Because in the same way that the, bri- the bit turns the horse, in the same way that the rudder turns the ship, your words, which are tugged on by your heart, will determine your path. But there's one more metaphor he gives us, and that is a fire. Let's go back to verse 5 for a moment. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Let's stop here for just a moment and think about this. James likens the tongue to a spark. Now, we know fire is a good thing or a bad thing. It's kind of a value-neutral thing, right? If it's used correctly, it can be radically life-giving. It can keep us warm when, when we might otherwise freeze. It can kill off bacteria that could be harmful so that the things that we eat are both more flavorful but also safe for us to consume. But fire, if misused, can be radically destructive. Outside of its confines, without control, fire can utterly destroy 
our bodies. It can destroy our lives. It can burn down the very things that we hold most dear. And it can become completely out of control. And he says that's the same thing with words that are idly sown, that are thrown out there, is that they can become utterly destructive and destroy your life. And then he points, there's a couple of things he says here that I want to just lean in a little bit more. First, he calls it a world of evil. Now, he's not suggesting that our tongues are inherently evil. Again, they're value neutral. They're simply a tool in the hands of the one that wields it, namely us. But, like for instance, a a vehicle, right? A vehicle is a tool that can be both wonderful or destructive. Electricity, the same kind of thing. It can be wonderful and, and provide light, or it can be radically destructive. Fire, same thing. Either wonderful or radically destructive. Your tongue can be life-giving, but it can also be radically destructive. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here's the reality. Our hearts begin to accumulate the detrius of this world, the brokenness, the sin, the anger, the insecurity, the lusts and greed of the people around us. We begin to be shaped and fashioned into the image of the world around us rather than being image bearers. And when that happens, it can set our whole lives on fire. It can absolutely impact our whole life, our marriage, our relationship with our kids, our relationship with our parents, our jobs, the ways that we interact with people, the ways that people perceive us. And he doubles down on this when he gets to the end of verse 6, and he says this, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, it's interesting that he uses that word hell there. You, you can't see it here in the, in the translation. But in the original Greek, the choice of the word that he uses to indicate hell is very informative of what he's talking about. Because he's, he's writing to people in a Greek-speaking area, and he's writing in Greek. And so it would have been most natural for him to choose the word that the Greeks used to talk about hell. Hades. That is the term that is used through almost the entire New Testament to talk about hell. But he does not choose that word. Instead, he chooses a word that is found only on the lips of one other person in Scripture, his big brother Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses the word Gehenna 11 times to talk about hell. For Jesus, it was a picture of what hell was like because Gehenna was shorthand for the Valley of Gihon that was just outside of Jerusalem. It was an actual place, and Jesus loved to use metaphors and word pictures to help drive his point home. So he points to the Valley of Gihon, which was the refuse. It was the dump of Jerusalem. It was the place that everybody would take the, uh, the um, entrails of, of their, their slaughtered animals and the stuff that they didn't want, and they would throw it out there, or clothes that had gotten stained and marred to the point where it wasn't even worth washing anymore, and they would throw it out there, or any other junk that they had that they no longer wanted, they would throw it into the Valley of Gihon. And then every once in a while, people would light another fire, but there were fires constantly going in that valley, burning up the refuse so that it would not become so overwhelming that, it, that the entire city would be a trash heap. And so there were fires going constantly, burning up the, 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 the disgusting grossness that everybody would rather just be gone. And when James is writing about our tongues, 
being the accumulation of the detrius of this world that are then set on fire and ultimately has the potential to set our fires on or set our lives on fire he can look out the door or look out the window and see the smoke from the valley of gihon rising over jerusalem it was a beautiful picture of something that was really negative and, and, and destructive. And he says, this is the same thing that your tongue does. If left uncontrolled, as the, the junk of this world flows into your heart and you, and you allow it to accumulate, if you're not careful, that kind of stuff will begin to overflow off of your tongue. And the words that you speak will follow suit. It's interesting when you think about it, our, our tongues show us a lot about the health of our bodies, don't they? We have some nurses and doctors in here. You know that when you go see a doctor and you say, you know, I'm not feeling very well, I, I feel gross, one of the first things the doctor or the nurse will do is say, hey, open your mouth and stick out your tongue. And they stick that, you know, popsicle stick without the popsicle, which is just totally goofing around with, you know, I'm like, give me the popsicle and I'd be happy to open my mouth. But they'll take that popsicle stick and they'll put it on your tongue and they will look at your tongue because it shows you, your tongue shows the state of your body. It is a wonderful barometer for how your body's doing. And in the same way, Jesus and James are saying our tongue is a wonderful barometer for the state of our heart. And I'm not the first one to notice this. In fact, there was one of the early um, Christian fathers, a guy named Jason or Justin wrote this. By examining the tongue, physicians find out the diseases of the body, and philosophers the diseases of the mind and the heart. Your tongue, the way you speak, the words you use, the tone you use when you're speaking, says a lot about the state of your heart, far better than opening your ribcage to try to understand what's going on inside. That doesn't work. But pay attention to your tongue because it is indicative of the state of your heart. And sometimes when you find yourself snapping at your spouse or your kids or your coworkers, just, you know, without even thinking, you're snapping back at them. That is a wonderful way to go, hold on a second. Something's going on for me. What's going on? I, I found this to be the case just this week. As, as, as life started getting a little bit overwhelming and the bandwidth of my life started to get sapped up with other things that were on my mind and then I would come home and Ethan or Grayson were just being who they are, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and yet I'm snapping at them far quicker. I, I want to allow people to be in process and yet with them, when their emotions start to surface, I try to stomp it down and say, stop. It's not okay. Basically, it's not okay for you to be a child in process of becoming an adult. And I snap at them, and, and it says less about them than it does about me. So pay attention to your words, because they reveal your heart. Let's keep going. All kinds of... Oh, you know, one other thing before we do move on, actually. We're talking about hell. Think about Satan for just a moment. Because Satan, our enemy, the adversary... He may not be able to possess our bodies if we're Christ followers. But his weapon of choice is words. He will tempt us with words, just like he did Adam and Eve. Did God really say, ah, he's holding out on you, don't you realize? He doesn't want you to ha be like him. 
And he uses words to tempt us and to put things that we think we might need in order to be complete or acceptable in front of us. And then when we give in to that, he accuses us and rubs our nose in it and shames us and tells us if anybody knew what you struggle with, they'd want nothing to do with you, so you better hide that down deep. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is an accuser prowling around looking for somebody whom he may devour. And he uses words to lead us astray, just like a bit in the mouth of a horse or a rudder on a ship. And sometimes he tempts us to be the vessels through which those words come. And when you become critical of somebody else, constantly pointing out their imperfections, pointing, about, pointing out the ways that they have fallen short of your expectations. When you, when you mock somebody or talk about them behind your back, when you cut them down to size, you are actually doing the work of the enemy for him. Now let's keep going. Verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. We glorify God and we speak words of praise, and at the same time we tear down his image bearers. I'll tell you one thing. You can say anything you want about me, but you want to make me mad? Pick on my kids, right? They have a place in my heart, and I will zealously guard them. And I may not always be nice to them, but you're not allowed to not be nice to them. (laughs) The irony of life. You want to make God mad. Now, you can say anything you want about him. He's a big enough person. He can handle it. But you start tearing down his image bearers. That not only hurts him, it angers him. What's more, many a times the most destructive words that are spoken over us are spoken by our own lips. We, his image bearers, tear ourselves down and say, I'm not, I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'm a failure. I'm useless. And we, use the, the, we say these words in many ways kind of reiterating things that we have had spoken over us. But they take root because words are powerful, radically powerful. Proverbs 18 puts it this way. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue has the power to give life or utterly destroy people. And those of us who live by it will eat the fruit of our tongue, will eat the fruit of the words that are spoken both into our own lives, over ourselves, they will become self-fulfilling prophecies. Not because you're not capable, but because you've told yourself you're not capable, you won't even try. The things that are spoken over us by people who we've trusted will become weights around our neck that drag us down, or or rocks in a backpack that we carry around that we don't even realize are there, but they weigh us down and they hinder us from running with freedom, living the life that is truly life. 
And so James just goes, you know, with the same tongue that we praise our Lord and Father, we also curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness, others and even ourselves. Out of the same mouth come praises and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Quick answer is no, it can't. Because if there's both fresh water and salt water, they will mix and become brackish. And at some point, it's not safe to drink. It will be destructive. Likewise, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear frigs? No, they can't. Each type of tree, each type of bush produces fruit in keeping with its kind. And in the same way, no salt spring can produce fresh water. And yet the tongue defies all of those things by being able to to glorify God and tear down the very image bearers that he loves and sent Jesus to die for. I've been thinking a lot this week about the words that have been spoken over me. There's a ton of them. Uh, from people that I barely even knew to people like my father, my mom, uh, people that I respect greatly. And sometimes even the words that I've spoken over myself. And each of these words, while they may not have been, you might not think much of them in the moment, those words carry weight. Sometimes to kind of put, you know, give a little bit of fresh breath to somebody who's, who's flagging and, and encouragement, I can keep going. But more often than not, They're, they're like a, a rifle bullet to the heart. You, you remember that, that children's uh, poem that we, you, we were all learned? There's something like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but how's it go? Words will never hurt me. What a loading pile of drivel that is. <laughs> right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. As I look back on my life, I realize that I have had a lot of bruises and scrapes from sticks and stones, and they've all healed. I have almost no marks on my body from them. Some of them I've inflicted upon myself, but there's very little marks on my body, and they are all superficial. But the words, they've penetrated a whole lot deeper. They've penetrated past my defenses and lodged in my heart like a lead bullet. And then, over the course of my life, although I didn't realize it, they have poisoned my bloodstream. They've poisoned my perspective of myself. They have shaped what I have felt capable of doing because I've been walking with a limp and not even realizing it. Let me just give you two examples of how words can either give life or they can give death, both from the sixth grade during the sixth grade, I was a little bit of an overweight boy who loved to read. I, fa- I, I just disappeared into books. That was where I was successful. I wasn't good at sports. Um, I wasn't very competitive at the time. I don't know where it came from. It's kind of developed late. But um, at the time, I, I didn't care if I ever made the basketball team, and I never made the basketball team. But during the sixth grade, I had this huge crush on Heather Smeaton. I don't think she ever listens to our podcast, so we should be safe here. <laughs> had this huge crush on Heather Smeaton. Would never tell her that because I was one of the least popular kids in school. But I was around her because my best friend Chad was one of the most popular kids in school. I had that going for me. And so I was always around Heather. 
always just wondered, like, what would it be like if I could just hold her hand? You know, it's just if she looked at me with anything other than disdain. And so towards the end of sixth grade, I finally scraped the courage to invite her to go to the school dance with me. First time I'd ever asked a girl to do anything with me other than like, hey, let's go throw lemons off out of the treehouse or something like that to like one of my, sis- like my next door neighbors who I considered sisters. So during, the, during our lunch period, I, I walked up to Heather and, um, Heather, would you want to go to the dance with me? Right? And she laughs. She goes, no, and walks away. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, cool. Cool, yeah, me neither. <laughs> And then I found a corner quietly and cried for the rest of the lunch period. It's just one word, right? One word, no. And I knew it was coming. But that didn't soften the blow. And that was the last time I invited a girl to go to a dance for five years. Till the end of my junior year, I went to every single school dance. And I made all of them because I'm a white boy who loves to dance. But I went to every dance by myself. And I told myself it's because I like to dance big and be unencumbered. I'm like Kevin James. Uh, you know, I'm like here. And I got Will Smith going, no, it's right here. I'm like, no, it's right here. This is where it's at. Grayson this morning dancing to worship, elbowing his father in places he shouldn't be. And I'm like, all right, just dance. Do it, right? Because he's got my blood. But I would go by myself to the dance because I told myself I wanted to dance by myself and not be encumbered by a date. In reality, I just didn't want to put myself on the line and open myself to being rejected again. So words have the power to take life and like a bit in the mouth of a horse, like a rudder on a ship, they have the ability to steer our life, our self-image, and our choices in ways that are incredibly destructive or incredibly life-giving. That same year in sixth grade, I had the joy of being in Mrs. Ryan's classroom. And Mrs. Ryan was the coolest teacher I have ever sat under. She wrote episodes for Seinfeld. Not kidding. She was awesome. And, And towards the end of the year, we were reading this book, and we got to the end of it, and we loved the book, but the ending was horrible. And we all agree that was like the worst ending to a good book ever. And she said, well, if you don't like it, then write your own ending. And she then gave us an hour to go and write our own ending. And so I did. We came back together. And she said, who wants to share their, their new ending? And so I'm like, I, I will. And I read it. And I remember vividly. She looked at me. And she just went, wow, Eric, you're a really talented writer. And she probably didn't think a whole lot of that. I guarantee she doesn't remember ever saying that, but I do. And over the coming years, whenever I felt insecure, I, I, I'm not good at sports, but I'm a good writer. Ah, uh, you know, I, I may have never have had a girlfriend, but I'm a good writer. When I got to college, and I thought, I'm going to be an attorney like my father, so I'm going to go pre-law. And then when I realized very quickly, oh, I'm definitely not cut out for being an attorney. That is not what I feel called to do. Went, well, what am I going to get my degree in? And the words of Mrs. Ryan spoken what, like seven or eight years before, floated to the surface. I'm a good writer. And so I became an English major because of words that were spoken over my life. And like a rudder of a ship, it it steered the course of my life because they found purchase in my heart. 
and I allowed them to have influence. And those are just two of countless words that have been spoken into my life, some that have been debilitating and some that have been incredibly life-giving, all of which have shaped in some way or another my self-image, my understanding of the world and what I am, my place in it. And I know that as you sit here this morning, you too have the fingerprints of words that have been spoken over you. Might have been from random people in your life. It might have more likely been from a mother or probably even more powerfully your father. A father's voice and a father's words, we saw at the men's breakfast yesterday, are incredibly powerful for good or for bad. They may also have been words that you have spoken over yourself, kind of reiterating things that you kind of picked up along the way or suspected. But those words have, have found purchase in your heart and taken root and begun to bear fruit in your life. And I, rather than just talking about it, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you four minutes right now to just consider what some of those words are that have found purchase in your heart. You don't have to put a value on it. Was it good or was it bad? Just what are the words that when you think about your life, what are the words that were spoken over you? So take a moment and in your outlines, I just want you to, to prayerfully consider what are those words. Write them down right now. Go ahead and do it. Stones may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. Stones and sticks break only skin, while words are ghosts that haunt me. Slant and curved, the word swords fall to pierce and stick inside me. Bats and bricks may ache through bones, but words can mortify me. Pain from words has left its scar on mind and heart that's tender. Cuts and bruises now have healed. It's words that I remember. The tongue has the power of life and death in it. And those who love it will eat of its fruit. And I think that James's words this morning to us uh, remind us of a couple of things that I would encourage you to consider as you go from here today. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to respond in a moment. First, for some of you, the, those three and a half minutes were like the longest of the whole day. Sorry. We try to be comfortable with silence around here. But for some of us, that was incredibly short. You could have used a lot more time. And I would encourage you to consider the words that have found purchase in your heart. Continue this week to consider the weight of those words in shaping you, in shaping your life. To quote G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle, right? Just being aware that they are there, that they have found purchase, that they've been affecting you is half of the process of healing. And then it's all about the Holy Spirit just doing the work that only He can do. And so this week, continue to prayerfully ask God, not only what are the words that have found purchase, but how have they been affecting me? 
How have they been affecting the way that I view myself? How have they been affecting the way that I view and interact with people around me? How have they been affecting the choices that I have made or not even allowed myself to make? How have these words shaped me, Father, and what would you have me do with them now? Second thing that James's words remind us of today is the power of our own tongues either to build up or tear down, to give life or to steal it. We have some parents in here, and I'm speaking to myself. The things we speak over our children, even the throwaway comments when we're frustrated and anger and when our mental bandwidth is sapped, they carry weight. And this morning, perhaps one of the things that the Spirit has been prompting on your heart is some of the words you have spoken into the lives and hearts of people you hold most dear. And perhaps one of the steps of healing today would be to go to those individuals and speak truth against the lies of errant words, to give life in places where you've inflicted wounds. Perhaps it's simply to humbly own our junk, but also moving forward to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to be agents of life-giving as opposed to agents of the enemy to tear people down and cut them down to size. And that will only happen when the Holy Spirit is allowed free reign to terraform our hearts and to clear out the junk that is accumulated when we consider the stuff we allow into our brains, the stuff that we watch, the stuff that we read, the stuff that we dwell upon, all of those things impact us. I remember years ago, Kathy and I would watch The West Wing, and then all of a sudden we would just start sniffing at one another and not realize why we're doing it like on like speed mode. We, or, or, or to put it another way, every time I watch The Crocodile Hunter, I end up speaking with an Australian accent, right? If I'm watching Braveheart, you better believe that I'm, I'm talking Scottish. It just, it just flows out. We are influenced by the stuff we let in. So what are you allowing in? And then pay attention to the words, to the tone of your voice, because it gives a good indication of where you are at in your heart. Father God, I thank you uh, for the reminder this morning that our words have power, that our tongues are a good barometer of the state of our heart, and that you have entrusted to us a powerful weapon that we can either use for good or evil, that we can use to protect and give life and bind up or to destroy tear down and harm. Would you help us to be agents who are life-giving? May the fruit of our tongue be sweet and full of life. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.